Welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. At one point, his passport was taken away in the, in the 1950s. And the two, two years later, he was being sent to the Soviet Union to perform. That's Alexander Bernstein. He is president of Artful Learning and vice president and treasurer of the Leonard Bernstein office. Alex taught for five years at the Packer Collegiate Institute in Brooklyn, New York, first as a second grade teacher, then as a teacher of drama for the middle school. He has studied acting, performed professionally, and worked as a production associate at the ABC News Documentary Unit. He holds a master's degree in English education from New York University and a bachelor's degree from Harvard University. He is the second child of the composer, conductor, educator, and humanitarian Leonard Bernstein. Welcome to the podcast, Alex. Hi, Max. How are you doing? I am great. And full disclosure for our listeners, we were classmates decades ago in New York and grew up <laughs> in families that were steeped in the performing arts with a shared but an asynchronous connection to the composer Kurt Weill. And we'll get to that later. But first, I'd like to talk about artful learning, which is a learning model that empowers educators to use the arts in all disciplines and over a quarter of a million students and 800 educators, principals, and artists stretching from Florida to Oregon have used the framework it starts with. So I was hoping you could give some background on how this all started now two decades ago. Sure. Well, my father had always been an educator of music throughout his career. And, you know, he became well known for his televised appearances on the Omnibus program in the 50s. And then, of course, the New York Philharmonic Young People's Concerts in the 60s and 70s. But he was always connecting the music, the content, to other disciplines. In 1973, he presented a series of lectures at Harvard called The Unanswered Question. And they explored the relationships between music and language. It was really bold and fascinating and provocative mm -hmm. stuff. I highly recommend it. And his mantra was, as it were, the best way to know a thing is in the context of another discipline. Mm -hmm. And he stuck with this notion and late in his life gave a sizable grant to some educators and artists in Nashville, Tennessee, who were working on arts integration schools there. And at the time, I was teaching and working on my master's. So we talked a lot about those things, learning as a creative act, etc. Mm -hmm. And he died in 1990, but my sisters and I decided that that work in Nashville should continue. And after years of R&D and different partners and fits and starts, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it became Artful Learning, which today has become a wonderfully successful model. Yeah, and it's something that's shown in a documentary that's on your website about its impact on specifically schools in Napa, California. I was wondering if you could recall an example of having seen it in operation, how Artful Learning touched somebody in a way that affected you. That is a terrific documentary. It's called How Did You Learn Today? It can be found on our website, artfullearning.org, where you can also mm -hmm. find lots of other information, examples of lessons, and it's concept-based, so you get lots of different concepts, relationships, balance, conflict. It's always moving and inspiring to visit an artful learning school and feel the energy and the engagement of the whole community, the students, the faculty, the administration, and the families. 
I mostly spend time with the teachers and the administrators at our trainings. And it's, you know, really daunting at first to dive into this stuff for these teachers who've been doing it one way for a long time to explore their creative self, to possibly fail and to collaborate, which is kind of rare for a lot of them. And so it's so immensely gratifying to see a principal or a math teacher beaming after presenting a little dance piece or visual artwork. And there's that aha moment, the realization of how their students can similarly thrive. For years, there's been talk in education by those of us on the arts side about STEAM rather than STEM, about science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. And is that part of what Art for Learning is about, would you say, is injecting that A into STEM to make it STEAM? Yes. For us, the arts are the great connective tissue that brings every subject in connection with every other subject. Through a work of art, students can look at the subject matter from so many different angles and really take Mm -hmm. ownership of it because everybody learns differently. So there are myriad points of entry into Mm -hmm. the subject matter. Speaking of kids, they, in elementary schools, are still largely saddled with curricula that were conceived before what we call the creative economy began to blossom. Your experience as a teacher must have leavened your understanding of how interdependence is a learned skill set in a very individualistic society. So how optimistic are you about the future of new models of learning being embedded in public schools across the country? Well, I mean, I'm extremely optimistic about artful learning, obviously. But crucially, it's really rigorous, and it serves the content demanded by the state standards. So it has artistic integrity, but also academic integrity. I think any new form and a new model should have both of those. I'm maybe not so optimistic about public education in general, however, as support and funding decreases, and not only for the arts, but across the board. That's kind of depressing. Yeah, it is. Although one hopes that with a new administration, perhaps there'll be some new life in rethinking what public education might be for this country. Not would. Thank goodness for Joe Biden. <laughs> Alex, your methodology in artful learning acknowledges that people learn in different ways, playing to the strengths of the visual learner, the auditory learner, the kinesthetic and tactile learners. Will the American workplace catch up with the variety of learning capacities and communication preferences of this new generation that you're helping train? One can only hope so. You know, we often hear about the creative economy or information society or what have you which will demand creative thinkers and curious learners. And let's hope so. But you bring up the converse, which is really interesting. And I pray that becomes the case, that a critical mass of young people comes into the workforce as curious, lifelong learners. And how could that not change how systems behave? That's a very interesting way to look at it. I would guess that employers have watched with interest a variety of changes in the workplace. Certainly the WeWork moment, which came and went, was an interesting challenge to assumptions about the workplace. And there are others undoubtedly to come in the aftermath of the pandemic where rethinking 
what modern work should be. And I suppose that what you're bringing to the party is really a new way of leavening the way these kids grow up and expect different opportunities in the field of work. Uh, without a doubt, yeah. Speaking of this moment, this is a Zoom epic, and it must be taking a toll on young students. So how has Artful Learning been coping with this effectively lost year in that respect? There is some pretty miraculous stuff going on, I have to say. Obviously, it's been really challenging for our schools, teachers, administrators, communities. Our schools and teachers have various levels of technological support and know-how. But the creativity and passion of our trainers and the teachers has been incredible. Far from trying to simply replace what they were doing in the classroom, they're finding ways for distance learning to enhance instruction and engagement. It's fantastic. For instance, with small group work, with assessment, use of various creative apps, it's wonderful to see. I mean, they're working so, so hard. And, you know, you talk to any teacher, artful learning or not these days, and it's just heroic what they're doing. It is heroic. I'm curious if you've had any pushback against arts-infused education from any corner, from school superintendents or principals or teachers. Well, I'll tell you about one kind of pushback we received from the early days. It's rather unexpected. We got complaints from the music education community. And they insisted that Leonard Bernstein's name should only be used to get more music instruction and instructors in the schools. And they argued that schools would use artful learning to avoid hiring art specialists and save money. Hmm. And my response has always been that there has to be a community demand for arts education in the first place. It can't just be imposed from above. And so we see every day Artful Learning creating that demand organically in the communities mm -hmm. we work in. The other pushback, of course, is that the arts are not really academics and so on. They're just fluff. And why should we pay money for that? But as I said, Artful Learning is very rigorous and we have plenty of data to make our case. You bring up music and I wanted to move into another topic because among your other roles... You're vice president and treasurer of the Leonard Bernstein office. And broad brush, as many are confined to home, how is orchestral music faring during the pandemic? Uh, it's not faring at all, uh, mm -hmm. sadly. Uh, we do get requests for virtual performances, which is great. But no concerts no public performances. Even in Germany, where they started to have public concerts a few weeks ago, they've now had to shut down again. Japan somehow is managing to open up a bit. They're having a few public events, but no. It's really hard. And imagine thousands and thousands and thousands of musicians having no work, not to mention you know, people in theater and, and so on. And as individual musicians, they have lives independent of being in an orchestra. They have access to their creativity. Are they doing anything as individuals using streaming media, using the web that's novel? Yeah, a lot of them are. And they do collaborative work with Zoom technology and other things. They can do chamber music and choral work and stuff like that. But it's not 
you know, it, it's fascinating and, and exciting, but they can't make a living doing it. Do we have any idea in terms of downloads what's happening with classical music writ large in this moment and how it's faring for an audience that's homebound? We don't have numbers for that. It's too soon. We get our ASCAP reports and things like that around the end of the year. We'll get to know that. It probably won't be very different than it was before, which, you know, is never very much. There's not an enormous audience for classical music. I think of your father's powerful connection with people in music and using music in ways that go to the heart of us. What would he think of a time in which music is only accessible remotely? Oh, my goodness. Well, first of all, you know, I always think how uh, it would be just about impossible for him to social distance. <laughs> he, was, <laughs> he was such a hugger and a kisser and just had to be around people all the time. It would have driven him crazy. Yeah, it's just unfathomable to think of him without being able to perform, to have audiences. I mean, I guess he would be alone composing which he also loved to do, but did it about half the time. And to do it all the time, would, I think, would have driven him insane. Alex, back to our shared experience. My grandfather wrote musicals set to music by Kurt Weill, including Knickerbocker Holiday, which premiered on Broadway in 1938, and a decade later, Lost in the Stars, which premiered uh -huh. in 1949. Now, Weill died in 1950, and two years later, your dad conducted... Viles, Three Penny Opera, then as a Brandeis faculty member. Exactly. But it was that, that helped launch his career, did it not, as a conductor? Absolutely, yeah. And, and he performed it, I think it was a um, premiere of Mark Blitzstein, who had done the translation, I think. And so they became very close. Yeah, that year at Brandeis really did help him take off. I remember when we were in class together, one or the other of my parents telling me about your grandfather and what a wonderful writer he was, how important he was. Last year was the centennial of your father's birth, an amazing celebration marked by almost 6,000 events worldwide with over 600 orchestras performing his works. Can you recall some of the highlights for you and your family of that centennial year? Oh, my goodness, there were so many. The Grammy Museum created a really terrific traveling exhibition of artifacts and manuscripts and clothing and everything. Uh, it started at the Kennedy Center and went all over the country, and I sort of followed it around a bit and uh, gave presentations. There were productions of my father's mass conducted by Marin Alsop that were awesome. I also loved uh, visiting colleges and universities, introducing my dad's music to younger audiences. But it was just incredible how many events there were. And, and luckily, there's three of us, my sisters and I, so we were able to sort of spread out and go to as many of these as we could. Are there any figures today that you look to and say they are in some ways working in the legacy of your dad's achievements? There are, but uh, it's, I don't want to 
<laughs> name names because somebody will be left out. Sure right. The polymath is, is, of course, someone with so many extensions of their creativity and drive and passion, which your dad was legendary for. Yeah, no, I, th- I do think he was unique in that respect to have the talent to be such a great conductor, communicator with the orchestra and the audience, to be such a talented composer of so many different kinds of styles and making it always uniquely his, and to be such an extraordinary educator, to have that charisma and be good looking, and to have that drive for a social justice that he had where he could use his platform for so many important causes. I don't think it's possible even before him or after him to find somebody really with that unique combination of gifts. Share a little more about his social justice commitments and activities, if you would, Alex. Uh, well, he, you know, he grew up Roosevelt liberal, I suppose, and he was always interested in social justice, was always being investigated by the FBI for hanging around with communist sympathizers, as it were, and there's a file, finally we got it, about 800 pages long that J. Edgar Hoover put together. And he fought against the Vietnam War, he marched civil rights, he uh, was absolutely at the vanguard of working for AIDS activism. He was so passionate about it and did not really worry about the ramifications. At one point, his passport was taken away in the, in the 1950s. And the two, <laughs> two years later, he was being sent to the Soviet Union to perform, which is just amazing. <laughs> Yeah, there was a great deal of confusion in the 50s about culture as an emissary. In those yeah. days, there was such a muddled sense of free expression on the one hand being a covenant, but on the other, terror and fear of the other. And your dad never suffered from that. No, uh, he didn't. And he just didn't let himself, even if if he did. I mean, there were some things, you know, I, I think uh, he didn't win an Oscar in uh, 1955, I guess it was, for On the Waterfront, which was, I, everybody agreed then and now that that was the best score, but they just weren't going to give him the Oscar because he was uh, a lefty. He also broke a barrier that I think changed our culture, and the barrier was one between the formalism of orchestral music and popular culture. Why was he so comfortable navigating between those two, which had previously been really separate and intentionally so? Yeah, I, I, it was just the, the, the timing. Um, I think, you know, he grew up sort of with the radio and jazz and popular culture, just, you know, living in that atmosphere. And he loved it. And he loved music of all kinds. And so when he had the opportunity to, with the omnibus program and with the young people's concerts, he was able to 
connect with the audience and make it accessible and make it make sense. And it wasn't stuffy. And he could play Beatles songs on the piano to make an example about sonata form and, and stuff like that. And it, it was uh, extraordinary. And he really knew mm-hmm. how to do it. And he was never talked down to his audience. It was just an extraordinary gift. Yeah, I think of Yo-Yo Ma as inheriting some of that sensibility in yeah. a capacity to make culture accessible, but never trade in any way against it that does disservice to the extraordinary virtuosity of composers. Absolutely, yeah, he's fantastic. Alex, it's dizzying to look over the calendar of upcoming performances of his works worldwide on leonardbernstein.com. Can you share some of your plans for the future? Well, knock wood, they're going to happen. Um, But when we do get to the other side of all this, there is a lot to look forward to. I I can't wait to travel again. I I Mm -hmm. miss all of that in their concerts in Japan and Germany, England, all over the States. I really can't wait for the new West Side Story film. Mm-hmm. directed by Steven Spielberg, and that was supposed to open this December and has been postponed till next December, and that's going to be incredible. Can you and, give us uh, any background on the film and how it came to be? Uh, it was something that uh, Spielberg had always wanted to do, he said, and he came to all the authors and their representatives uh, like eight years ago, and said he wanted to do it. He wanted to remake the film. And he he has done an incredible... I, I sat in on, on a lot of the filming this summer. It was just amazing. It's going to be mm-hmm. fantastic, I think. And with a, script, a new script by Tony Kushner, mm-hmm. uh, who wrote Angels of America, and, um, and Lincoln, in fact. <laughs> I, I think that's going to be really really something and oh and also bradley cooper will begin filming his uh, leonard bernstein biopic uh, Mm. this year as well so that's something to look forward to and who's that for uh that's for netflix Mm -hmm. is the producer well it just keeps on coming a wellspring of creativity and in your case, Alex, creativity around artful learning, around the preservation of a memory, but also a promulgation of continued creativity. Thank you so much for making time to be with us today. A pleasure, Max. Artfullearning.org. Check it mm-hmm. out. We've been speaking today with Alexander Bernstein, president of Artful Learning and vice president and treasurer of the Leonard Bernstein office. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. If you like what you heard, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts so other listeners can find their way to us.